you open your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, just know that there are some in the back on the cart. You're free to pick one up if you would like. I want to say thank you to David and all of the team that helped uh, on Friday as we gave out nearly 80 boxes to families. And then uh, also as, as we took the 100 turkeys and extra stuff to uh, Cross of Christ Deliverance Temple in uh, downtown Rochester. It's a sister Nazarene church. Patrick McNair is the pastor there, and Calvary has a long-standing relationship with that church, and so it, it's, it was a good weekend. So thanks to Venture and all those that helped a lot of the logistics of that. It was a beautiful expression of the church at work, I think. Uh, and so I'm deeply appreciative of that. That will happen again, by the way. A, a variation of that will happen in the December season. So if you didn't get a chance to volunteer and would like to be a part of it, just know that you'll have an opportunity in about a month. So, well, a little, little less than a month, actually. We continue in Matthew's gospel, picking up where we ended last week with... Uh, Verse 13 was the end of last week's message on the parable of the ten virgins, and we're just going to move right on into the next, very next text, starting in Matthew uh, 25, verse 14. Before I read the text, let me remind us a bit of what has been happening in Matthew's gospel as we've come to the end of this last section of Jesus' teaching. Next week's going to be my last sermon from the book of Matthew. Uh, we've been in this gospel for almost all of this whole year, and we're going to transition after next Sunday. We'll move into the Advent season, and I'll be focusing on Isaiah. Hope is here will be the theme of, of Advent, and so I hope that you will be back with us for that. But I'm, I'm looking forward to next week. I will just say, as a preview of, of next week's sermon, I've been asking for you to share any acts of love that you've been doing to people, or for people, over the last month of November. Uh, it will be a part of my sermon. I will not be naming names. I will not be saying this is what so-and-so did. I just want to have a list of things that are, have been done over this month so that we can know, look, we're not just a church that talks about Scripture. We're a church that lives Scripture. And you know that we do that. But friends, as you know, as we enter into the Christmas season, we tend to have more guests. And I want them to know who we are. That we're a people that actually lives this. And so you're going to help me do that as we return to Jesus' words uh, in the sheeps and the goats, the very next passage of Scripture that, that's going to be our final passage from the book of Matthew next Sunday. So if you could send that, there's a, a, a button on the app that you can click, Acts of Love, and just let me know. If you can't get that to work, you can send it to me via text or email. I'd just love to hear Acts of Love that you've been doing this last month. But where have we been? This closing section of Scripture, chapters 24 and 25, are all focused on what technically is called the parousia, or the return of Christ, the second coming. That's what Jesus' focus has been on since chapter 24. And the parables that we have been studying the last few weeks are all about preparation. What does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to be ready for this? What happens if it comes quickly? What happens if it doesn't come quickly? Will we be prepared? 
these passages are all about the end of this age is it what is a way that we could talk about this when we talk about the end of the age then your ears might begin to tingle or or perk up a little bit and you might automatically begin to think about end times when we talk about the end of the age it's more often that you hear it as end times these days and and it seems like i don't know what your experience is but is i've been in the church now for three decades when i hear end times it's not joyful language (laughs) i often think of wars and destruction and heartache and brokenness that's end times language right and when the world is falling apart in particularly obvious ways dramatic ways then it seems like end times language begins to pick up doesn't it suddenly it fills churches pastors begin to preach about end times it's on street corners sometimes it's in the airwaves end times language friends that's no more so than when you add in a conflict in the middle east and suddenly ooh we need to interpret the signs of the times and it's become pretty common even to in in our contemporary context our current context for us to hear christian leaders christian ministers declaring that ooh jesus's return is upon us and friends what am i going to say next that most certainly is true from at least one perspective i don't know if you know this or not but from the moment that jesus ascended to the right hand of the father we have been in the end times did you know that that from that moment on to this very day all of creation is anticipating the return of jesus Christ we most certainly are closer to the return of Jesus than any humans have been up to this point that's a pretty obvious statement isn't it let it sink in a little bit <laughs> i can guarantee it today we are closer to the return of Christ than any generation has been before us Amen. So we are in the end times. And Jesus is returning. But when? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be months. I don't know if it's going to be days. I don't know if it's going to be years. I don't know if it will be another millennia or two or many. And friends, no one knows. Matthew 24 and 25 aren't interested in us knowing the time or the hour that Christ will return. The interest in this last discourse of teaching of Jesus is not on us knowing the exact time or the exact hour, but it is in us being ready for whenever Jesus does return Jesus says in chapter 24 verse 36 and if you have your bible open it might be good for you just to underline this verse because it's just a good helpful reminder to us 
when things start falling apart in our world, people are going to come out of the woodwork and say, ooh, it's, look, 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 here it is, here it is. Ah, but Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. We don't know. And yes, it may happen tomorrow. That may be true. The question for us, the question that Jesus is really concerned about, are you living your faith right now? Because that matters most of all. Amen? With this in mind, let's turn to the parable of the talents. Or if you have the modern, or the, not the modern, but the newer translation of the NIV, like I do, it says the parable of the bags of gold. Mm. I grew up with the older version of the NIV, and it was the parable of the talents. And talents would be listed as I'm reading. You're going to hear bags of gold, but your translation, if you have the NIV with you, might be the older one that says talents. So let's read. Matthew 25, picking up verse 14. Again, it will be, well, let me stop right there. Again is a cue to us that Jesus isn't starting something new. That this teaching that he is about to tell us, this story, this parable, is connected to what we've already been looking at. Preparation. Knowing what it means to put the words of Jesus Christ into practice, into action. What does it mean to be ready for his return? Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags, five talents of gold. To another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one who, with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, those are good words. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold, one talent, master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See here what it belongs, see here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. 
Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh God, would you help us with this passage? Would you help each of us to hear what it is that you need us to hear this morning? Amen. We have a problem from the get-go, which is why the, the newer translation of NI, the NIV has moved away from tenet, or talent excuse me, language to bags of gold. Because in the English, talent means gifts, abilities, skill sets, the things that we're naturally gifted at. And this t- parable is not really about that. But if you hear the word talent, that's where your mind naturally goes in the English, Right? And that's why the NIV has transitioned away from that language, because this parable is not really about your giftedness. So let me say from the start what the end of this sermon won't be. (laughs) I'm not going to use this parable to ask you to put your gifts and talents in service of the Lord. Of course you should do that. (laughs) Don't think you're going to get a pass on that. Of course you should do that. Of course that's what we're meant to do. Of course to be a part of God's kingdom. Of course to be his people. We should give all of ourselves and everything that we have to the service of the Lord. Amen, church? All right. But that's not what this sermon's about. Because we're not talking about talents as in natural abilities and gifts and skill sets. There's a second problem that we have with this passage. We are in the fall season. Almost into the winter season, I think, right? We're not yet winter, are we? I don't, I don't pay attention to that stuff. But Okay, so we're in the fall season. That's good. I didn't lie. Uh, but we're in the downward arc coming to the end of the year, the calendar year, and we're also coming to the end of the fiscal year for our church, which happens to be at the end of February. And so, friends, this might be a good passage for a pastor-like figure that looks a lot like me to stand before a congregation that looks a lot like you and really hit you with the idea that you should be giving your money to the church. No amens to that. Interesting. Fascinating. (laughs) You've never been quieter. Well, I don't need to because you are giving to the church. So it's, it's, I, I've already thanked you. I, this passage isn't about that. It's not about you giving your money to the church. Should you be giving money to the church? Yes, of course you should. Because in giving money to the church, you're giving it to the kingdom of God. And if you're giving it to the kingdom of God, li- people's lives are being transformed by that. It's essential that we do this. If we don't do it, people, then guess what happens? On Friday, 80 people don't get a Thanksgiving meal from this church. Cross of Christ Deliverance Temple doesn't get meal for 100 people. If we're not giving money to the church, then we don't have discipleship ministries here. And so people aren't coming into Sunday school. They're not coming into children's ministry. They're not coming into teen ministry. They're not being discipled. People aren't being changed. It's not just people. It's you and me being changed by the ministries of this church. Amen? 
We give to the church because we know it's essential. It's why we're here, so that we can be an outpost of grace. And it requires money for us to pay the bills. It requires us money to heat the church, to cool the church, to have a facility to do all of that, to to have staff. All of that requires money. So should we be giving to the church? Yes, we should. Absolutely, we should. But that's not what this message is about. So what is this parable about? Friends, we need to pay attention to the third servant if you want to know what this parable is really about. Three servants are given bags of gold, literally bags of gold. A talent is not a coin. We've talked about a denarius. It is a coin. A denarius was considered a day's wage, right? We've talked about that. Did you know that a denarius as a day's wage makes the the talent then equivalent to 20 years of day's wages? We're talking about a significant amount of money. Think about it this way. Scholars estimate that one talent, one bag of gold that is equivalent to what is called a talent in Greek, one bag would weigh upwards of 70 pounds. So the one servant that's given five bags, five talents, you're talking 350 pounds of gold. Shocking amount of money here. Parables, as you've been with me And as we've been exploring the book of Matthew, and as we've transitioned towards the second half of the church year, we've moved into this section of scripture where Jesus has been telling a lot of parables. And as you've probably discerned, and as I've tried to help you be aware, that the parables often have surprising twists in them. We saw this in last week's parable where we came to the end of of the wedding ceremony or the wedding ceremony. Story and the brides, bridesmaids that didn't have the oil come to a locked door, a closed door, and that wouldn't have been customary in Jesus' day. It's a surprising twist that we have to take note of. There's no real surprising twist necessarily in this one, but there is a shock value to it, an exaggeration that happens. And sometimes the parables of Jesus have an exaggerated moment in it or a detail in it that is trying to draw your attention to this is significant, pay attention to it. The amount of money that we're being used or talked about in this parable is to send off signals to us, to the ancient hearers and to us. Look, this is significant. Pay attention. This isn't chump change. Friends, if you want to get a sense of what Jesus is doing in this parable, you need to not hear bags of gold. You need to hear a million dollars. One talent is equivalent to, not, not technically, but... Theoretically, right? Conceptually, today to a million dollars. A servant is given five million dollars, two million dollars, one million dollars. You and I would sit up and take notice to that story, wouldn't we? What is going on here? Well, we better pay attention to this, and that's exactly why Jesus tells the story this way. I want you to notice that the three servants are given each according to his ability. Did you see that? That's what the text tells us. So there's a subtle reference here to what we might call in the English talents, right? Each according to their ability, their talents, the gifts and abilities that each of us have. The master sees varying levels of giftedness in the three servants. And he gives to each of them accordingly. To the one that's 
given five talents or five bags of gold, he clearly sees something more in that one. And in the two, there's something more than the one that only receives one bag of gold. That's true. They each have different giftedness, different abilities. But I want you to notice that there's no judgment statement about that in this text. It is simply told as a matter of fact. The master gives according to their abilities. The lack of importance placed on the abilities of each is emphasized by the fact that the two servants' interactions with the master are virtually identical. Did you notice that? Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. See, I have gained two more. And to both servants, the master says the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. You notice that it doesn't matter that the master sees one having more ability, an ability to handle five bags, 350 pounds of gold, a million, five million dollars, let's say. It does not matter that one is given more and one given a little less. They are treated as equal, in a sense. The master praises both equally, equally invites them to share in his happiness, his reward. They both did good. Are you with me, church? So the direct lesson here isn't about abilities, then. What in the English we call talents. Because the third servant also has an ability. It's not as if that third servant is missing out on that. The master only gives the responsibility of one bag of gold or one talent to this one. But friends, he's given responsibility all the same. And if we're thinking conceptually about a million dollars, does it really matter that he's only given a million dollars? That's still pretty significant, isn't it, teens? You with me? million dollars? You'd like to handle that, right? <laughs> okay, so if you're ever given a million dollars, first you give it to the church. Um, but, no, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. Ah, uh, maybe. Uh, don't tithe. Yes, yes, not. Uh, don't do what this servant does. You probably should pay attention just in case you ever are given a million dollars. Unlike the previous two servants, this one does something radically different. He buries the gold. Right. Now, friends, that seems reckless, right? Today, that seems reckless. Bury a million dollars? Are you kidding me? But it, actually, in the ancient world, that wouldn't be reckless at all. That would actually be considered a pretty wise way of, of keeping your money safe from robbers and thieves. Because they didn't have banks like we have today. It's true that the master condemns this servant in verse 27, if you have your Bible open, for not at least putting the money on deposit with the bankers, it says. What you need to understand about that, though, is that that's not a reference to banking system like we have it today. So a banker, what would be considered a banker in the ancient world, would be a money lender. Somebody that gives out loans. You need to think that a banker, when it's referenced here in the New Testament, a banker is a little bit more like a loan shark 
than like a real banker of today. A lot depended on the character of this money lender or this, this person that was giving loans. Are they upstanding? Are they devious? Kind of a risky situation. It wasn't just that, oh, I can automatically deposit my money with this person and know that I'll get a good return on it. You didn't actually have that guarantee. And yet, that system was available in the ancient world, which is why the master criticizes the one for just burying it. Because the master wants the money to be circulated. He wants it to be active. But this servant couldn't even stomach that risk. The other two actually have far more at risk. They, they do far riskier things. They have more to lose, and they risk it. But this one has less, and he can't even stomach the modest risk of giving it to a money lender or what the text calls a banker. And why is that? Well, verse 25 is the clue to us. And it's the clue to understanding this parable, I believe. He's afraid. We have no in inclination or indication that the first two servants have fear at all. They receive five bags of gold, two bags of gold, and they take it out and they circulate it and they work it in the economy and in the market and whatever they do, they double it and come back. And we have no indication in the text that they were afraid, that they were fearful, that this was a risky thing. And you're thinking about $5 million, $2 million, something equivalent to that idea in the modern world. That it's a lot of risk and yet we don't have them afraid. But this one is afraid. And did you notice how, as the fear seems to grip this servant, it changes his perception of the master? Suddenly, the master is presented to us in a very harsh and ugly light. There's a total shift in this parable, so that we think at the beginning part of the parable, as, as the master interacts with the two servants, the one with the five and the two, we think, oh, this is a good master. Look at what he's done. Look at, look at the trust that he has in these people, in these servants. And then his words, his response to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Is there a person in here who's grown up in the church that hasn't looked forward to hearing those words when we see God face to face. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, I've heard these words time and again, and I think to myself, oh, if only. When I see Jesus face to face, could I just hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So the first part of the parable, we've we have this master character that really seems to be a symbolism for God. He's generous. He's gracious. He's kind. He's compassionate. Oh, he wants us to, re to, to experience the reward with him. He's inviting us to experience happiness with him. The line, come and share in your master's happiness, is most certainly meant to bring to mind the eternal reward that awaits God's people at the end of of the age. But suddenly the master becomes greedy, a hard man, according to the third servant. So the third servant has us asking, wait, was the master so supposed to symbolize God at all? Is something 
happened here that actually we misidentified the master at the beginning and it's not God because God is not mean-spirited, is he? God is not greedy and God is not abusive. Amen? Amen? It's important for us to know that. You should not be excusing the latter part of this text. The, the words of the third servant is though we not, now somehow need to make God greedy. No. That's a wrong interpretation. I want to suggest to you that the third servant's fear has distorted his perception of the master. And so the question that I have to you, church, at least a question that we should ask ourselves based on that interpretation, can your fears distort your perception of God? Maybe we should take that seriously so that we don't turn this benevolent, gracious one, the one who wants to pass on blessing, invite us to experience happiness, that we don't turn that person, that God, into a mean-spirited, angry judge who only seeks to harm and destroy the fear of the third servant has changed the way that he views the master, and I think we should pay attention to that. This servant is so driven by fear that he can risk nothing at all, so he buries the treasure. Friends, he doesn't squander it. He doesn't go off like the prodigal and waste it. Don't read the third servant as a prodigal. He's not a prodigal. Nevertheless, he's not thanked for his action. In fact, he's condemned for it. Which, on the surface, I think sounds incredibly harsh, doesn't it? It would be easy to justify the judgment if this one wasted the money, stole it, did something evil with it. All he did was bury it and then return it. It was the master's money, he saved it, and now he's given it back. Why is this so problematic? To understand this parable, I think we need to consider Jesus giving a challenge to his disciples at this very moment as he says these words. That I think he intends for this challenge to be carried into the early church. And our friend, friends, I think this challenge transcends the ages the centuries that separate us from the time Jesus just spoke these words to even to this day. There is a challenge to the 21st century church right here. The talent, the bag of gold, I think is to represent the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. You might remember that that's a quote from Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. The parable of the sower where Jesus says to his disciples, you have been given the secrets to the kingdom of heaven. To each follower of Jesus, the truth of God has been revealed. The question that is being posed to Jesus' hearers in this parable is, will we be courageous with the good news? Will we go public with it? Or will we be controlled by fear and bury it 
In an age where everything seems to be falling apart, it seems like the prudent thing for us Christians to do would be to sit on our treasure. Let's be quiet about our faith. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not draw too much attention to the church right now. But Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in this, does he? And I would like to just point out that the church was in a far more precarious place when Jesus first spoke these words than it is today. He's calling the church to take risks, to go public. He wants us to take risks because in each of us, he sees ability. To each of us, the secrets of God's kingdom have been revealed. And to sit on that great treasure, to bury it out of fear of what others might say or what others might do to us, well, friends, that comes with a really high cost, doesn't it? And is that a cost that we want to pay? Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I need you to hear this, though, because I want you to be very clear about this. Even though Jesus is asking us to be risk takers here, And asking us to go public with the good news of Jesus Christ. What he is not asking of his followers is to beat people over the head with the gospel. He's not asking or giving us permission to abuse people with the good news. So us going public with our faith faith is not to be abusive to others. But friends, Jesus is calling us. To take a risk. Fear and silence is not the way of Jesus Christ. So to be like Jesus. The Messiah that we're waiting to return. We, his followers, have to be risk takers. The third servant was afraid to take a risk. So he buried it. If the talent is to represent the secrets of the kingdom of God that's been given to each of us, according to our ability, some of you have lived in this faith a lot longer. You're more like the one that's been given five talents. Some of you are just coming into it. Some of you are a little bit younger. Oh, two, one. Each of us has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven according to our ability. And now the question is, what are we going to do with it? Will we hear our Lord and Savior one day say to us, Oh, good and faithful servant. Well done. Come, receive. Come, experience my happiness. Friends, Jesus shows us in his very life that he was a risk taker. He risked failure. He risked rejection. He risked being hurt. So that you and I could receive the good news. And now he's asking his disciples, will you do likewise? Will you be like me? As a response to this message, we're going to come to the table. Not my table. It's the Lord's table. It's scary to be risk takers. And there's a lot in our society right now that is working against what I've just preached. Let's be cautious. Let's be careful. 
Let's be defensive. That makes a lot of sense, but Jesus is asking us to do something different. And I don't know about you, but I need, I need something to help me to do that. We have something to remind us of that. The table. 